Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and look at your word. And Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts with those ten families we know who are not involved in church. And I pray that you would use us as instruments to invite them and then let you do your work. I pray, Father, that we would be those who demonstrate to a watching world what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to continue or start that today. In Christ's name, amen. So we're involved in this series of sermons on the life of Christ. And, uh, and uh, the pound sign or the number sign we put before the name Jesus in social media is called a hashtag. And so if you are on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn or Pinterest, any of those, that hashtag is used to digitally file whatever you have said. For instance, if you were to write something like this, the Steelers better beat Jacksonville today, hashtag Steelers, and you did that on Facebook, then Facebook, that platform, would take what you said and put it in a Steelers file. And everyone around the world, anyone around the world who said something and put hashtag Steelers, it would go, whatever they said, would go in that file. And so you could go open that file and, and check it out. That's what we're doing with the study of Jesus. We want to look at Scripture, all of Scripture, everything that uh, the writers have said about Jesus in Scripture. And we want to consider everything they have said, not for more information, but so that we will know Jesus more intimately, that we will follow Him more passionately, and we will obey Him wholeheartedly. Information that doesn't get to your heart is wasted. And we want to make sure that we know Him intimately, follow Him passionately, and serve Him wholeheartedly. I don't know if you agree with this or not, and please don't say if you do or not, but the world is filled with wishy, washy, wimpy Christians that no one wants to use as an example. And I, for one, and I know you as well, don't want, by your name, hashtag wimpy washy, wimpy Christian when this thing's over. We want to be those who make an impact for Jesus Christ. So take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. Last time we considered the temptation of Christ. Before that, the baptism of Christ. Today we want to consider a description that John the Baptist uses to introduce Jesus Christ. Each of the four Gospels tell us about this man named John the Baptist who came on the scene very suddenly and created quite a stir. It had been 400 years before prophet had spoken. Malachi was the last one, and Israel desperately wanted to hear from a prophet, God's prophet. In fact, because Rome had come and oppressed them economically, spiritually, and politically, they wanted that Messiah. They wanted the Old Testament Moses to come and deliver them from this, this oppression in Rome. They were looking for the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. By the way, just so we're clear on this, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. 
In the Old Testament, the priests were anointed with oil. But Isaiah 61.1 said that there was going to come one and he was going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he was going to preach the good news to the poor. He was going to set the captive free. He was going to bind the broken heart. He was, going to, he was going to take the prisoner out of darkness. This one was going to come, and he was going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he was called in Hebrew, the Messiah. Because the culture was Greek, he was also called by another name. The Greek translation of anointed one. You know what that is? Christ. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. A lot of people thought John the Baptist was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one from the Old Testament. And so they sent some officials out to question him. Look at John chapter 1, verse 20. When they sent these officials out, these religious leaders, to question him, he, said, he did not fail, verse 20 says, to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? No, he answered. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said this in John chapter 1, verse 21. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. That old Hebrew word is a construction worker making a highway. I am here just as a construction worker making a highway for Jesus to come. A day later... John saw Jesus walking on the road. We presume that Jesus was by himself. He had not called any disciples yet. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, or behold, don't miss him. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next day, John introduces Jesus the very same way. Look at verse 35. The next day, Jesus was there again with two of his disciples. And when they saw Jesus pass, passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now that's an interesting title, isn't it? Lamb of God. Subjective genitive. God's Lamb. Lamb that God sent. He's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so you're going to invite some people to church, right? They're going to come, eight out of ten of them. And they're going to say, I started reading my Bible and I came across this thing, Lamb of God, why in the world did John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? Why would he call him that? What's the significance of that title? How are you going to answer them? Jesus is the Lamb of God. What in the world does that mean? What made Jesus the Lamb of God? Why did God need a lamb? Well, to answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, literally, to Genesis. So turn back there with me. We're going to work our way through Scripture to try to answer that question. What does it mean that Jesus was the Lamb of God? And we need to start in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages and get back to the New Testament. Genesis chapter 2. God created Adam, gave him everything he could ever want, placed him in a literal heaven, a garden to care for it and work it. And then he told him in Genesis chapter 2, verse 
16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely what? Not if, not maybe, but you will die. Now that word die or death in Scripture is important for us to understand what that is. There are three aspects to death every time you see it in Scripture. One, there is a physical aspect of death. We are separated from our bodies. Our soul is separated from our body. There is a spiritual aspect of death. Our our spirit, our soul is separated from God. And there is an eternal aspect of death. We are separated from God forever. So when we see the word die, it doesn't mean just the physical. That's the process that we're all in. But we're also in a state of separation from God and eternal separation from God. Now, God said to Adam, everything's great, great here, you got all this stuff, but there's one thing you need, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he decided to create Eve for Adam, woman for man. Guys, aren't you glad God made that decision? Well, I expected a little more. If you're sitting by your wife, you better say, yes, 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 yes. Amen. We don't know how many years went by in Genesis 1 and 2. But we know Adam and Eve lived in this paradise. Not figurative, but literal heaven on earth. They communicated freely with God. They communicated freely with each other. There was complete vulnerability and oneness. They had all they wanted, except they had that one command. Don't eat from the tree. It'd be like telling your kids, hey, look, have your friends over. There's a pool is open in the back. The trampoline's there. There's the basketball court, the swing set, the climbing bars, the slide. There is pizza on the deck. There are Hershey bars and, and Hershey bars with almonds in particular. And... Um, and um, any, every chocolate candy bar is there. And there's vanilla Dr. Peppers from Sonic. I mean, everything you could ever want to eat is on the deck. By the way, there's that, see that street way over there? Don't play on the street. It's dangerous. It's just that one thing you can't do. Everything else is yours to enjoy. That's what God told Adam. Man, it's all here. To describe the, the, the existence of the sinless environment that we can't even comprehend... Moses, the writer of Genesis, inspired by God, says this in Genesis 2, 25. They were both naked and felt no shame. Moses said, can you believe that? We cover ourselves inside and out. They were naked. Didn't even realize it. Running around without shame wasn't even on their radar. During our last time together, we saw this showdown between Jesus and Satan in the desert. Remember, Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He was at his weakest state. God gave him no advantage. Tempted as ever we are, in every way as we are, yet without sin. Well, here's the first showdown in the garden. And uh, Adam and Eve were not at their weakest state. They were surrounded by the bounty and beauty of the garden. You know the story. Satan comes to to the woman. The man is right there with her, by the way. He tempts her. He said, God's a liar. God won't keep his word. You can't trust God. That one command, he's not going to do anything with that. She takes the fruit. She eats it. She hands it to the man. And right then and there, 
death enters into the human race. Like a poison at the beginning of a stream contaminates the entire stream. Uh, stream. So sin at the beginning of the human race contaminates the entire stream of humanity. Right then and there, Adam and Eve died. They begin the process of physical death because now the body, you don't want to live forever in a sinful world. That is hell on earth. Can you imagine that? Decaying body living forever in this world. Right then and there, they were separated from God, as we'll see in a second. Right then and there, that separation was going to last for eternity. Right then and there, Adam and Eve died just as God said. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, now Adam and Eve carried death with them. In the same way, death came to all men because all sin. Hey, by the way, was God unfair? You got it all, one commandment. Why didn't God just say, time out, mulligan, let's, let's hit it again, tee it up, let's try it one more time. What if he renegotiated what he said? You really want him to do that? You want him to renegotiate the promise of eternity? You want him to renegotiate the promise of Jesus? See, God, God can never go back on his word. He is completely just in sending the penalty of death. And now man lives under the penalty of death. Again, physical separation from the body at death. We are all in that process of dying. If you don't know Christ, you are right now in the state of spiritual death. And if you don't do something about it, eternal death. Two things we need to look at in Genesis before we move on. Number one, go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Mark that verse, significant verse in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God comes to Satan and he says, I will put enmity, some of your translations may say hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now that's a true statement, isn't it? There's going to be hostility between Satan and all of Eve's offspring. But there's going to be one in particular. Now God goes from the plural to the singular. He. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call that the Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. Proto-first. Evangelium, good news. The first mention of the good news in the Bible. There's going to be one coming from Eve. Satan and he is going to crush your head. He is going to defeat you and he's going to defeat, defeat everything you're about. Death itself. Now you're going to strike him on the hill. That's for sure. You're going to cause him pain. You're even going to put him on a cross. But in the end of the day, he wins. He will crush your head. He's going to be the Lamb of God. The perfect sacrifice. One more thing here. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Do you remember the penalty of sin was what? Death. Death is physical, spiritual, eternal. When Adam and Eve realized that they had sinned, they, they were ashamed and they took fig leaves and they covered 
themselves. But look at verse 21 of chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Let's think through that. God said the penalty of sin is what? Death. Adam and Eve are already in that process. But God, in his grace, puts to death. How do you, how do you get skin? He puts to death an animal. And he, that animal is the substitute, sacrifice, for Adam and Eve. And he takes the skin and he clothes them with that skin. Who's the subject of that verse, by the way? God made the garment of skin. God himself sacrificed an animal for Adam and Eve. God came and clothed them. And that sacrifice made by God himself is, became a system of the Old Testament whereby man and woman could have their sins forgiven with a substitute, a substitute sacrifice. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. We looked at this a little bit uh, last week. Exodus chapter 12. Just a couple of things from here. Remember the story. The nation of Israel uh, is in slavery in Egypt. They are crying out to God for someone to deliver them. God sends them a deliverer named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let the people go. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to. And so God sends ten plagues all against the gods of Egypt. Look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the instruction was given to the Israelites, you take a, a lamb. And you're going to keep it in your house for four days. It's got to be a perfect lamb. It can't be with, have any defect on it. You can't just go get one that you want to get rid of anyway. And you need to sacrifice that lamb. Uh, look, at verse, um, look at verse 21. Chapter 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders to Israel and said, Go at once and select the animals from your fam- for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the, in the blood, uh, in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of your doorpost. Now, not one of you shall go outside, uh, go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over the doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house or strike you down. So the Israelites were to take this lamb. They were to sacrifice the lamb. They were to take hyssop, which was kind of like a brush, and they were to dip it in the blood of that sacrificed lamb that had been dripped into a basin. They were to paint that on the top of their doorpost and the sides. And when the angel of death came, the last plague in Israel, to destroy all the firstborn of men and animals, when the angel of death saw that blood painted on the doorway, the angel would what? Pass over that house. Now that truly happened, and it's a tremendous picture of what Jesus does for us, isn't it? 
when we are, by the way, blood represents the death. When we are covered with His blood, when we have trusted in His death as our own, when we have trusted in Him as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, then the angel of eternal death passes over us. Because Jesus lives, we don't have to die. Because Jesus died for us, we can live. Look at another passage. Isaiah chapter 53. Find the psalm in the middle of your psalms in the middle of your Bible. Turn to Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and you're at Isaiah 53. Won't take time for all this, but there's a huge portion in Isaiah that talks about the suffering servant and the victorious Savior. This is part of that. I want to read two passages here. Look at verse 7. Talking about this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ who is going to come. Isaiah wrote, 700 years before Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a what? A lamb to slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. What's that remind you of? Jesus before the authorities, when they said, come on, tell us who you are. And he remained silent. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Let's think about that a second. Who put Jesus to death? Romans? Jews? Well, God used them as instruments, but who put God to death? God put his son to death just like he did in Genesis 2 with that sacrificial animal to pay the penalty for Adam and Eve's sin. So God put his son to death for us. He died for us. It was his will to crush him. So that's so important. Jesus was not some victim of political, a political turn. This was in God's plan all along. At just the right time, Galatians says, God sent his son. So the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, make his life a guilt offering for us. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What's that? It's the resurrection. After the suffering of his soul, he's going to see the light of life. He's not done. He's going to be satisfied, and by the... By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. God's Son humiliated himself and was numbered among the transgressors just for us. For he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ came, and he died for us on the cross. John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, that word sin is called a singular collective. It's in the singular, but it means all of us. Every sin you and I have ever committed or will ever commit, and now the world's, Jesus died for on the cross. He took 
our sin away. How did he take it away? He didn't just uh, wrap it up and go throw it in the ocean someplace. He didn't cover it up. He took it away by paying its penalty. He died on the cross. The Lamb of God died on the cross for our sin. Hebrews says it this way. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by what? The sacrifice of himself. Paul says it this way. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Here's the most important question I could ask you. It's not what do you think about the Steelers. It's not how bummed are you that Oklahoma lost last night. The most important question I could ask you. Have you trusted in the Lamb of God to do what He came to do? To take away your sin. Can you look me in the eye and tell me with absolute certainty? Yes. I have complete confidence. There was a point in my life when I trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the Lamb of God to pay the penalty for my sin, to take away my death. I understand that the physical process of death is just a reminder of sin. And I know that there was a time I was separated from God and couldn't do anything about it. And I knew that if I didn't do something about it, I was going to be spending eternity separated from Him. And the Bible unashamedly calls that hell, eternal punishment. Realizing that, I trusted in Jesus alone as the Lamb of God. It was as if I took that hyssop plant and dipped it in his death on the cross and painted it over my heart. That's the decision I made. Yes, I know. I am confident that if I would die right now, I would spend eternity in heaven because I have trusted in the Lamb of God. Can you Say that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 21 says this. For we know it is not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you have been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. But He was revealed to us in these last times for your sake. Through Him, you believed in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Is your faith and hope in God? Do you know that for certain? I don't care if you like the music or not. I don't care if you like our ministries or not. Here's the question I'm asking you. 
Do you know with certainty that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you don't, the ball is in your court. And that's a responsibility that you better take care of. Saving faith, that's talked about in this passage. There are four things to it. And we use this acronym to explain saving faith. Can't, spelled with a K. First is knowledge. If you're here today and you didn't sleep through this sermon, which, never mind, um, you now have knowledge, right? You now know, hear me now, if if you've been sleeping, wake up, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. There's no other way but through Him. Second is agreement. You can know a lot of things but not agree to it, right? You can say, yeah, I know what you said. I don't believe it. That's part of faith. Agreeing to what you know. And when you agree to something, you act on it. If you really agree. The N is need. I'm going to come back to that. The T is trust. Just like the, think about it, those Israelites knew the angel of death was coming, right? And they had to take this hyssop plant and dip it in the blood and put it on their doorposts before the angel passed by. That was trust. They were trusting that God's word is actually true, that he fulfills his promises. Have you trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, to place you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point where you said, I cannot trust in myself, my confirmation, my CCD class, my baptism, I trust in Jesus Christ. Christ alone. Now, let's go back to this. I am more and more convinced that a lot of people in our area, see, we got everything we need, right? Not many of us here worried about food when we go home. We're going to get in a very nice car and we're going to go to a very nice home We have nice jobs. And so when someone says, yeah, there's this God void in your heart, you say, hmm, I ain't feeling it. I'm actually pretty satisfied. I've got everything I want. I'm making more money than I ever thought I'd make. I'm driving all those cars I dreamed about when I was growing up. I got a couple stashed in my garage. I got this home out in the mountains or on the lake or wherever. I'm feeling pretty good. You, you talk about that void in my heart. I, I'm, my kids, I'm healthy. It's good. All right. Fantastic. Congratulations. God bless you. 
But will you agree with this? One of these days, you're going to die. Now, if you argued, if you don't believe anything I said today, I think we can agree on that one. Right? You're going to die. You're reading the paper. Some people live a long life. Some go very quickly. Not a one of us have any guarantee that we're going to make it home for lunch. Not a one of us. You're going to die. What are you going to do then? Because a beamer ain't going to do you a bit of good. Your savings account, you will not take with you. That house you built, stay in here. What are you going to do then? Well, some of you say, well, you just die. It's like a lot of people believe lights out, over. It's not what the scripture says. You don't even take that chance. The Bible says that when you close your eyes in death, there is an eternity waiting. That's why God says death is not just the physical death. It is a separation from him, and it's an eternal death. Without Jesus Christ, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Without Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity in eternal punishment. Well, that's not fair. Time out. God's given you a way to escape. He sent His Son to die for you so you don't have to. It's fair because in Genesis, He said, if you eat the apple, the fruit, you're going to die. And they ate it. And sin comes into every life. Because of sin, we're going to die. Physically, spiritually, and eternally without Christ. Oh, it's fair. And God is so gracious that He gives you a way out. Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't like it because it's only one way. Well, let me ask you this question. We're in a burning building. And you're not going to make it out. And a fireman comes in and risks his life to knock a little hole in the wall for you. You going to tell him, one hole? Are you kidding me? I want three or four holes. You're going to take that hole and you're going to get out of there and you're going to thank him for saving your life. So I don't know how fulfilled you are right now, but if you don't fill the emptiness... You're going to die. And without Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer forever the penalty of death. And today I encourage you to trust in Him. If you cannot look someone straight in the eye and say, I have absolutely no doubt that if I would fall dead right now, I would wake up and see my Savior, the one who died for me. Then you need to make that for certain before you leave here today.